0: My name's Nathan Brackett. I'm an executive editor of Rolling Stone. Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're devoting our first episode to the great David Bowie, his legacy, in his last years with tributes from Beck, Mick Jagger, Nile Rodgers. I'm also going to talk about some new music with a panel of Rolling Stone critics. And we're going to read some reader mail and throw the writer of our 5 Seconds of Summer cover story to the wolves. But first, I'm here with Rollingstone.com news editor, Jason Newman, to talk about the age of surprise albums and the new surprise album yes. from Rihanna. The bane of music journalist's existence, also. Music <laughs> journalists are really the forgotten victims when it comes to yeah. surprise albums, because we try to make plans, we try to do magazines Prepare and websites. A little bit
1: and nothing. And, and it doesn't it, work. It all goes to pot. Um, yeah, no, and speaking of going to pot, Rihanna, <laughs> uh, last week, obviously, we've been waiting three years for an album and last ones, if she put it out. Uh, Auntie, her imminent album that is now out. Um, Indeed, the title
0: and the single work with is all with Drake yeah. is already a uh, number one hit in 92 countries. ninety two countries, maybe more, like yes. possibly one hundred and eighty five.
1: Um, but yeah, so she, <laughs> but she put this out on Title, and it was a, it was a little bumpy. Title accidentally leaked the album. Title,
0: that's Jay Z's. streaming sur- streaming uh, upstart
1: il- streaming service. Can we say ill fated? We can say, in the process of being and still ill-fated, there's right. the future still uncertain. But there's been a lot of criticism. It was of, of certainly it. an
0: ill-fated release.
1: It was ill-fated. It came out early. They leaked it for, for about 20, 20 minutes, minutes, which is tw- all
0: it takes. 20 minutes is spread. all you need
1: for the Rihanna Navy to just screenshot all the songs, put out the album, distribute it. Later that night, Rihanna puts the album out officially, gives it away for free, which will not be counted in the Billboard uh, 200. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how she sells, the actual sales sales.
0: And I I happen to be a a big fan of the record, and we're actually going to talk about the record a little more with uh, a couple key critics uh, later in the episode. But first, I just want to ask you, Jason Newman, we are in the age of surprise albums. Can you talk a little bit about this this phenomenon, when it started, what it means?
1: It really started in earnest in December of 2013 when, out of nowhere, Beyonce drops her Monster album. She had had hundreds of people sign NDAs from choreography And video directors and producers, and it was the best kept secret in the industry. And it was pretty,
0: I mean, I'm gonna say earth shaking, which sounds impressive, but it it really was. I mean, like, this was one of the biggest artists in the the world. arguably the biggest. Pop star in the world
1: is able to hide something like this was a actual incredible phenomenon and feat for her. The
0: publicist had to deal with lots of angry calls again from the forgotten victims, <laughs> Where, music yeah, journalists. Why did
1: we have Very to do cross? And at yeah. night also she dropped it. But right.
0: um so that started in December of 2013,
1: and then really 2014, um, and last year you start seeing artists drop. Kind of Wilco dropped one, and kind of artists all across all genres maybe not a
0: beyonce level success but 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 a excellent record star wars but but it was also almost like the mixtapes
1: right like the mixtapes back in the day people just dropped mixtapes because they finished the album and it was done why would you wait on it and i think what it speaks to is the diminishing power
0: of the record label where back in the day this is the bigger point really like what this is like why is it happening now like just to put a little bit of context in the old days record labels would tee up all these releases for the end of the year they would have a marketing plan they have a promotion plan you would actually have lists every month of which records are coming out and schedules that they would try to stick to and maybe a couple big stars would slide right but now that's kind of gone out the window and most of the biggest stars with a few exceptions Put out records whenever they want, and they
1: had, and and also if you needed lead time. You needed about three months lead time because back when print magazines were more prevalent than online, now Wait. it's maybe a little equal.
0: What do you mean? Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: you needed lead time to talk to to journalists. Right. now you still need that, obviously, for a lot of artists, but. It's a lot easier and it's less necessary for an artist to need their label in terms of pushing stuff out. So it makes more sense that if you are a superstar artist and you finish the album, there's less of a need to really wait all these months for the plan to put in place. You can just sort of drop the bomb on the Internet and throw it on Twitter and then, you know, essentially run the Internet for 24 hours until the next
0: thing. So basically, like in the old days, Walter Yetnikoff or some other big label person could go and say, hey, Rihanna if you want to get on the radio if you want to get this out to all the right. you know all the If press. you want
1: marketing money you want radio money if, if you, and your your album's done in June you're going to wait till November
0: if you want to be everywhere you yeah. need us and you need to give us what we need yeah. uh, whereas now Basically, the equivalent of Walter Yetnikoff is now sitting kind of quietly waiting, basically taking the Rihanna album whenever he can get it. Well, one could argue the the
1: equivalent of Walter Yetnikoff now is like Daniel at Spotify or, you know, like the guys who – the new tech tech giants. He's going to be
0: thrilled to hear that. Well, that's what it is. The last thing I'll add is that these rules really only apply to like the top – 0.1% of That's, artists. Like everybody know, else, kind of still needs a little. There lineup. is an
1: argument when Radiohead did it, and then with uh with In Rainbows, uh, when Radiohead did that, the sort of pay what you want strategy, and everyone's like, oh, this is the future, and every artist can do that. Not really. Most artists aren't Radiohead and don't have the name where they can command that. We're not at the level yet where sort of every artist is this very independent entity. But it does show the proliferation of it, of how many more artists are doing it over the past couple of years.
0: It's so, not, like, if you're, not if you're playing, like, a corner bar, you can't be like, surprise, the
1: record's out. Like, oh, my Who the God. Fuck are you? Like, it yeah, might no, not work. No one's going to care. But it does show, like, I, this is not a trend anymore, I don't think. I think if we're way past that. I think it's sort of one of the new things, just the new ways to release it. You know? We have to get used to it. So Music journalists will never get used to it. No. We
0: like planning. No, (laughs) but Uh, we have to, yes. Jason Newman, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And we're going to move on to uh, David
2: Bowie.
0: I'm with senior writer Brian Hyatt to to talk about the great David Bowie, who died earlier this month. Brian, you wrote a big portion of our cover story on his final years. Yeah. Putting aside the importance of David Bowie and how much all of us loved his music and how important he was to music and style and so many other things, I mean, he's he's someone who belonged to everybody. Geeks felt like they had some ownership of him, but then also somebody like Anna Wintour had to give it up to David Bowie. And so it, I feel like it, it took literally weeks. I've never seen like the extent, with the exception of maybe Michael Jackson, I don't know if I've ever seen a level of response to a musician dying in my lifetime, not including Elvis, which I was too young to really get a, a handle on. On. Brian, you, you dug really deep into the, the last 10 years of Bowie's life and also the last couple years which are kind of one of the most amazing like endgames I've ever seen of an artist's life. He had this incredible flurry of activity uh, yeah. in his last months and finished his life with a remarkable album that was already getting incredible reviews. It was probably the best-reviewed album, I think, as you pointed out, by an artist of his age and from the, like, the 60s and 70s classic rock school in years, since maybe Dylan's Modern Times. And then he died two days later. He also had a play called Lazarus, which was off-Broadway, was this avant-garde production, which you saw a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about his flurry of activity in his last year?
3: Yeah, well, he didn't want to have that as his last year. He was trying very hard to live. And at the same time, he was preparing all this art that would, if necessary, serve as a final statement for him. But what we learned is even though Blackstar and Lazarus kind of artistically are incredible farewells, he was actually was hoping to record at least one more album. And, you know, I spoke to Tony Visconti, who was his longtime producer and friend. And And probably closer, at least professionally, to anyone else. One of the longest
0: relationships with Bowie professionally and personally than almost anyone else in his life. Yes. Would
4: you say that? Uh,
3: Yes. So this is what Tony had to say about working with him in those last few months
4: you know he waits until the end of an album to really write to finalize the lyrics and i saw what he was writing for Lazarus and all that and i thought you canny bastard you know you you're you're writing a farewell album you know wow and he he just laughed he just laughed you know <laughs> he, he he was so he was so brave and courageous you know he he uh, you know i mean what we did in the studio i guess might be different from his family life but I don't know. He, perhaps he was being courageous to his family as well. But he certainly was courageous with us. And his energy was still incredible for a man who had cancer. His energy was brilliant. Mm. Uh, he couldn't work for very long. He worked for about four or five hours, and then he got pretty tired and had to leave. But uh, he, in, what he does in four or five hours is more than anyone else does in a day. You know, He's, he's smart. He was quick, and he knew what he was doing. Mm. So I, but you know, here it is. Like about um, oh, just after, on the weekend, just before, um, just after Black Star was released, he uh, FaceTime with me, and you know, on the computer, and uh, he said he was uh, thrilled that he had five songs ready for the next album. Mm. And at that latest late stage, he was planning the next, the follow-up to Black Star. And I was thrilled, and I thought, okay, it was acknowledged that it was terminal by then. But I thought, and he thought, he'd have a few months at least. Obviously, if he's if he's excited about doing his next album, he must have thought he had a few more months. Yeah. So the end the end must have been very rapid. You know, I'm I'm not privy to it. I don't know exactly, but he must have taken ill very quickly after that uh, phone call.
3: Obviously, you try to stay professional, but doing an interview like that when a lot of that information wasn't out there, and you're hearing it, uh, it was it was pretty intense, pretty yeah, emotional. Obviously, but, but yeah, yeah. Can you take us back a little bit? Because there have been a number of stories that have
0: focused on the last few months of Bowie's life. I I feel like yours gets a little deeper, but you also put it in context of the last decade, which was kind of, I don't want to say the last decade, but it was kind of a quiet decade and starting with some health problems around 2004. Can you talk about that?
3: So basically what we now know to be the final act of David Bowie's life began in June of 2004. He's standing on Mm -hmm. stage singing a song called Reality As It Happens when he's struck by a pain in his chest and he had to leave the stage the the concert was cut short and horribly was misdiagnosed as a pinched nerve in his shoulder um (laughs) by the they'd gotten like a doctor who worked with the president of whatever country they were in and still the doctor screwed it up so he's prescribed muscle relaxants he's on stage in a festival in germany a couple days later makes it heroically through the show. And you can hear on a bootleg of him just nailing the final notes of Ziggy Stardust. That's the end of the show. Makes it down the stairs off the stage and collapses backstage. And they, they haul him away and realize <laughs> that he has a blocked artery in his heart, emergency surgery. Right. And that was it. That was it for his life as a public figure. It, it's amazing hearing that song, knowing that that's the
0: last time he's going to sing that song on stage.
3: Yeah, you can, you can find it on, uh, on YouTube if you're so inclined. But it, right. the greatest part is, of course, he hits the final note because Showman, to the end, I mean, he must have known right. something really bad was happening to him, and he hits that note, which is great.
5: <laughs>
3: it wasn't the end of his life yet, but it was the end of his career as a public figure. He, he would play it, a, a
0: few scattered charity shows, one kind of well-known one with Arcade Fire and Alicia Keys, but he never went on tour again.
3: Never went on tour again, never did an in-depth interview again, and it began this really interesting period when he was kind of hidden away in plain sight. Right. And this is after a
0: very active 90s where he, he, he did a, a, at least half a dozen records. Was it, He was, you know, available for interviews, was out there. Yeah, there's
3: a million interviews on the Reality album, which was his last album before this break. Like, you know, he was talking to everyone. Right. Totally accessible. Right. Um, You'd never know what was coming.
0: Right. And so take us up to the first surprise
3: record and then kind of what happened after that next day. Well, so he spent that period doing a bunch of stuff. He, you know, taking his daughter to school. He told Mike Garson, his great keyboardist, that he really just wanted to be a dad and that was before the heart attack. And he did that. He was painting and drawing taking his kid to school, going to movies at the Angelica downtown. You would talk about how
0: he would sneak into movies if he didn't like the first one at the Angelica. I mean, there are a lot of really great details in your story, too. I mean, one thing is... He would actually take the subway, supposedly, which I can't believe David Bowie on the subway. Definitely
3: taxis, let's put it that uh, way. All right, definitely <laughs> taxis. And, and he had this incredible strategy for putting off people who thought he was David Bowie. Yeah, this is from an essay written by one of his friends. Apparently, he would just carry around a Greek-language newspaper with the hopes that... I've never heard of that. Yes. Yeah, uh, with, with the hopes that, you know, if you saw him, you'd be like, oh, that Greek dude looks a hell of a lot like David Bowie. And it, supposedly it worked. I know. could see it working. I could. <laughs> and
0: then there was also something in your story about it tattoo that I don't think a lot of people knew he had. Yeah,
3: this is, this is kind of incredible. One of his bandmates from Tin Machine said that while they were on tour in Japan around 1992, Bowie got a tattoo based on a drawing he did of Iman riding on a dolphin, and underneath it was the, the Serenity Prayer. So because he's also in, in substance abuse recovery right. uh, at that time. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I did not know that about no. That, 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 that.
0: No, between you and everybody else who reported on this story, we talked to maybe 20 or 25 people, like people yeah. like a director of one of his music videos or a film that, who had some interesting things to say. Well,
3: I think the thing in question, he, he did a couple of movies. He did The Prestige in the 2000s, oh, yes. and he, and he yes. also did this movie, uh, August. And the director, uh, Austin Chick, of this movie this is a little tiny indie movie, total flop, but... Bowie approached the director through his agent and said, I want to do this part as like this dot com executive. And the guy's like, okay. And, and, they, told up, yeah. and they told him, good. Yeah. They told him he basically had one precondition, which is under no circumstances, he said, was I allowed to direct him. Like he just had to <laughs> t- accept what he was given, which is, and you know, and he, he took said the deal. He's, he of took course. the deal. Yeah. yeah. And he said in the end, he took a, you know, a Little bit of direction. You know? right, um, right. Right. right, So but right. you know, Bowie Bowie did what he wanted during those years, which was not a ton public.
0: He, he was not a public figure, but he, he definitely he wasn't a hermit either. He he did he was out there. He was
3: out there he was on red carpets with, with his wife. He he showed up for his son Duncan Jones's premiere of, of his movie Moon, great movie, by the way. And so he, he was around, but he just he was mostly silent, you know.
0: And he left it as an artist. I, I mean I not to be flip about it, but I just can't think of a better way for an artist to leave in terms of having a couple amazing works out
3: there. Right. So he got his mystique back because what you have to do, right, as an artist who's been around a while is the trick is to get past the stage when you're trying to stay relevant and ascend to a level where you're just a legend where people are delighted to hear from you. And he pulled off possibly the best way ever of doing that, which is to stay silent for a decade. By that point, it wasn't just like, oh, here's a baby boomer artist peddling his latest album again. Oh, you know, so sick of hearing from. No, it was like he engineered this perfect, total surprise album the next day, which no one had any idea about, and dropped the announcement uh, on his birthday, and people freaked out. And, and apparently, he told Bono, and Bono told us, that you know he was really delighted that people were so excited uh, to hear from him. Right. Because you know, it just shows he wasn't sure, because he, in his mind, he knew that it had actually been a struggle to promote his last few albums. You know, just as all aging artists face, like, people take you for granted, right. you know? It's almost and hard it- to remember now, now that everyone's freaking out and in his absence, but I mean, people were taking him for granted. And
0: especially during the 90s, yeah. I would say, when he released, as we, as we said, about a half dozen albums, and some of them were well reviewed like Heathen, and some of them weren't.
3: Yeah. So, and then he, he turned it all around, and the, and the next day was a very strong album. I think that the album that followed was much better, Black Star. But what happened was that he put out this album that had great songs on it, he made great music videos, and people were very excited about new David Bowie music. Right. And I think what, the, what that did was make him excited, and he, he told the music video director, I can't stop it," he said. "I'm just creating, creating, and creating." He was really on a creative role. and what he may not have known at that moment, and would soon find out, is he also uh, had been diagnosed with cancer. Right. So what you had was this intense burst of productivity with the ultimate deadline against him. And right. you know what an amazing story. And he, you know, and he made his deadline. Right.
0: In the same issue, we talked to a lot of people about either their personal relationships with David Bowie or also just the effect that he had on them or his influence on them. One of them was uh, from Mick Jagger. We're going to hear a little bit from this interview about their friendship and kind of their sense of competition.
2: And we kind of kept friends and used to, you know, hang out in London a lot together. And first of all, I used to come around and play me all his music. And he'd always look in my clothes labels to see what labels I was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> when he would see me he'd like he'd give me a hug and then he then i i could feel him like going behind the collar of my shirts to see what i was what clothes i was wearing what (laughs) what labels were um yeah so we were hanging out in those those early days and and i remember him when he did the gene genie you know coming over and playing all that different mixers and stuff I love that Jagger is just copping to them,
0: checking out each other's clothes, and you just imagine like the two most stylish men, you know, in the world are checking each other out. Yeah. Uh, Jagger also talked about his one and only collaboration with Bowie, which is kind of amazing from the 80s. Their cover of "Dancing in the Street," which they actually recorded in one day.
2: It was such fun when we did "Dancing in the Street" because you know we, we were both sort of hung up doing long studio. We'd we spend ages in the studio, and that day we just we decided to do this cover version of the the. The, that tune I love and when that. we walked in yeah we walked in and all the musicians were ready because we had to do the, the recording and the video in one day which is like we said well, this is never gonna you know this can't possibly happen and we just walked in and did like two takes of the musicians and walked out and went straight onto the set of the video and did the video and when we couldn't believe it when we, we came to the end of the day we were so funny we said you see it can't be done <laughs> why are we spending you know years in the studio um, but anyway, no, it was a great, you know, that, that, it was such a fun work thing when it was such a, you know, it was the only time I really cooperated on anything, which is really stupid when you think about it. But, you know, it was, it was such a good work thing, but it was also a great fun day, and we really enjoyed ourselves So I was camping up, and it was it's hilarious to watch. We also talked to Beck, who is on the record as a huge Bowie
0: fan. He would covered Sound & Vision for this big interactive thing with a full orchestra a few years ago. Once you start listening to Beck and Bowie together, you realize what an important influence he was.
4: To me, he's such a central figure in, the, in modern music. Yeah. I grew up uh, with his music always round. I mean, when he started making records, pretty much tracks with my life to this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's always been a David Bowie record or David Bowie doing something and you know, and I think for certain musicians he's a a kind of guidepost or gravitational force. You know, he's something that you set course to Mm -hmm. or measure what you're doing against. He really helped construct how we write and record and put songs together and think about music. So it, 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 it's such a, a central figure. And then, you know, for me, it, it, it almost feels like losing, even, even though I didn't know him well. But it, in some unexpected way, it feels like losing family or something.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: If you listen to Quicksand from uh, Bowie's Hunky Dory, here, we'll just put it on for a minute.
6: I'm closer to the golden dawn uniform.
0: And then you put on Golden Age from Beck's Sea Change record, you can hear the, the influence pretty clearly.
6: Put your
4: hands on the, wheel. Let the gold
0: uh, Nile Rogers, who famously worked with Bowie on Let's Dance, uh, also came by the studio, and Brian, you talked to him.
3: Yeah, uh, he was behind David Bowie's biggest hit. It's easy to forget. So here's Nile Rogers talking about how uh, David Bowie brought him a picture one day that defined the entire aesthetic of the Let's
6: Dance album. He came to my apartment, he knocked on my door, and he had his hands behind his back like this. <laughs> and he says, No, darling, this is what I want my album to sound like. Okay. <laughs> And it was a picture of Little Richard right. in a red suit getting into a red Cadillac. And it was all monochromatic. Richard's hair was like dyed kind of red, suit red, Cadillac red. It was just red. And as soon as David showed me that picture, I understood it as well as a perfect mathematic equation or a perfectly written sentence. I mean, just perfect. I understood right away. And a a nanosecond, I thought, oh, he wants a record that sounds like it's from the future, even if we release the record in 3,020. (laughs) Because that's what this Little Richard picture looks like. This looks like they just took this picture this morning, and that's a 1960 Cadillac. But it looked like they had just taken that photo that morning right out in front of the building. And I knew that he wanted the record to be evergreen, but that's the last thing he wanted me to say. He wanted me to hear it from the way that this thing looked. And here's Nile Rodgers
3: talking about the pretty eclectic band that he assembled for the Let's Dance album.
6: He had this sense that these disparate people from these backgrounds that don't match, your bass player is Puerto Rican named Rojas, (laughs) your drummer is named Omar Hakim, your guitar player is Nile Rodgers, named after Riven Africa, and, you know, it's like... And then you get Steve Ray Vaughn coming up from... Texas. You know, it's like, that's your band. Right. And it was killing. It was a killing band. It was ridiculous. We, we did everything in one take. Just whip right through that record. When I saw the look on Stevie Ray Vaughan's face, when he heard that track Let's Dance, and I saw him listening, I've been around brilliant, schooled musicians my entire life. I was raised with, like, geniuses. I saw this guy calculating where the space was. Where do I speak in this record that's complete? This record is already complete to Stevie. He's sitting there like grooving it like, man, this is incredible. Where do I fit in? And boy, didn't he fit in? I mean, it was like he plays one note when he
4: goes,
6: like, okay, that, that's the note.
3: Now also talked about how he was able to sort of uh, knock Bowie out of some old habits and convince him
6: to try something radically new on the song Let's Dance. Once David charged me with making a hit, I felt that A lot of his songs were lacking in ear candy at the top of the compositions. And I explained to him that every song I've ever written starts with the chorus. And he says, really? That's crazy. You build to the chorus. I said, yeah. If you're white, you build to the chorus. I said, shit. I start with the chorus because I know that every guy who's the promotion man who's going to get your record added at the radio station is going to go home with a pile of records under his arm that weekend, play it for his kids... And the one that the kids say is the record, that's the one he's going to get added next week. So my records go, do-do-do-do, we are family. One, two, ah, freak out. Good times, we, like, right away. So I said, David, I want the first words out of your mouth to be let's dance. Oh, really? Really? I don't know Usually I would build it up And then we'd go "No, No please man Come on Let the first words Like the first words go Freak out The first words are We are family The first words Let's Dance So Let's Dance Turned out to be a hit 11 million seller I mean like Insane I've got drama, all right, stone. we're going to talk about
0: some new music. I'm here with a couple of our senior critics, staff writer Brittany Spanos of RollingStone.com and reviews editor Simon vozick levinson First of all, everybody's talking about the new Rihanna record. Oh, uh, yeah. Simon, can you tell me a little bit of the history? Because Rihanna is one of the biggest stars out there right
7: now. She was on a real pop schedule for a while. She was putting out an album once a year. Right. From 2006 until 2012, Rihanna put out an album almost every single year. It was a really regular schedule. She could reliably generate pop hits and an album. Right. But then she slowed down. Her most recent album was toward the end of 2012, Talk That Talk. And since then, there's been this sort of pause where Rihanna's fans have been kept waiting. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the new record? So this album, after months and months of anticipation, I think Rihanna's Navy uh, built up a a healthy level of eagerness to hear it. Dropped sort of semi by surprise on Thursday night and it's great. It's amazing. It's a real left turn in a lot of ways. I think it's her most kind of album album. It feels a lot less like a collection of pop singles and more like a kind of cohesive experience that takes you to a new and interesting place. Britney Spanos, how does this record fit into the scheme of Rihanna records?
8: This is definitely Rihanna's riskiest and her just most experimental album and I also think it's a really great glimpse at off-day Rihanna. Sort of just like Rihanna, just like listening to psychedelic music and sort of making these really beautiful and hypnotic sounds and showcasing how much she's willing to sort of be like, I'm not going to make the same sort of pop Songs that I was making for so long and right. kinda wanna go in a new direction.
0: I, I mean I think you're right. I think it feels to my ears like the first true Rihanna album. Yeah. It's like it's got a vibe all the way through. Even, so even cohesive. the even work, which is clearly like an, an awesome single, is really as much about the vibe as the chorus. I mean it's got a mm-hmm. chorus, but the producers call it this future dance hall vibe.
8: Something that you never been mm-hmm. But i wake up and, hell and wrong. Just get ready for work work.
0: What's your favorite song, Britney?
8: I think that it's been sort of transitioning throughout the day, but I have to say that the Tame Impala cover is one that I've been going back to because it's such a well, shock. Well, wait,
0: yeah, we have to just talk about this for a little <laughs> bit. On. Like, what, how does, How does this fit in, a Rihanna Tame Impala cover?
8: I feel like it's sort of like the thesis of the album. Like, she is, is not going for this radio-friendly, sort of like, it seems like it's meant to be anti-radio. This right. entire thing is against the grain of what we expect from Rihanna. Well, yeah, for
0: people who don't know Tame Impala, they are like a quintessential Australian indie rock band who headlined Governor's bar kind of like psychedelic and Rihanna covers uh
8: same old mistakes right it's incredible like she does like a really standard cover of it but somehow her voice makes it even better and I hadn't heard that song until I listened to the Rihanna album so then I went back and I was like oh this is so cool right,
7: right. yeah that pairing so it, how would you compare it to the original
8: I like this a lot more. <laughs> right. Right. I'm also Rihanna Stan so <laughs>
7: <like> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that song, Same Old Mistakes Was a strong highlight on Tame Impala's album last year But somehow it just opens up new worlds when Rihanna sings it It feels like that's the voice you, that song always wanted to have right. And just to, I mean, that, that pairing is so unexpected You know, Rihanna, one of the biggest pop stars in the world And then Tame Impala, this sort of, you know, weird, cool, psychedelic band It's sort of like if in the 60s, the Supremes had covered like a Sid Barrett song It's like, it's so <laughs> so out there and unexpected, but it works perfectly
8: Feel like a brand new i nice. nice.
0: We're also going to talk about the new Macklemore single, which has gotten a lot of attention. It's eight minutes long. It's called White Privilege 2. It's actually the sequel of a song called White Privilege off
7: of the last album? No, it's before that. It's from an album called uh, The Language of My Mind from Mm -hmm. 2005. This is before Macklemore blew up when he was just an underground backpack rapper from Seattle. And it's kind of,
0: I mean, I have to say, whether you like it or not, it's a pretty amazing track. It's him looking at his place in the world as a white rapper. It's addressing racism in America head-on.
3: Exploited and stolen. The music, the moment, the magic, the passion, the fashion you toy with, the culture was never yours to make better. Your Miley, your Elvis, your Iggy Azalea. Make it so plastic you've
8: heisted the magic, you've taken the drums and the accent. Brittany,
0: what did you think of it? Like, is it good?
8: (laughs) Um the positives of the song before I get into all of my (laughs) very diplomatic of you (laughs) Um, I love the structure of it I love downtown too so I really love these kind of longer really dramatic stories that he's telling with the new songs right it kind of reminded me sort of just all these different scenes that he sort of placed within this one greater story of him going to this protest and like encountering a parent who's talking about how he's the only rapper that she'll let her listen to and all that stuff he kind of like
0: recapitulates like all like the classic thing that a white soccer mom coming up to him might say
8: Like calling Uh, the song One Love. Right.
0: Oh, you're not like those other rappers. Yeah. Yeah.
8: And it was really theatrical to me, the way that he set that up. And I love that aspect of it. Right. But I feel like Macklemore has this intense guilt vomit. He just (laughs) has to, like, talk about his guilt about things all the time. Right. And I respect it. And I think he has nothing but good intentions. But...
0: It's about racism in America, but it's also about him. Which is maybe the thing that has thrown some
7: people off. So the thing that I find fascinating about this song is that whether you love it or hate it, whatever negative thing you can say about Macklemore, you can assume that Macklemore has thought that about himself and he's really taking the criticisms that were unleashed against him in the last year or two and really addressing them head on. So Macklemore was correctly, I think, in, in many cases uh, criticized for getting rich by making a form of music that was pioneered by black artists by taking it, exploiting, appropriating music. He owns up to that in this song and that's something that I find actually fascinating. I think that's something that virtually no no artist, no artist, white artist has ever done in the long history of white artists making uh, music forms that were pioneered by black people.
0: I think i come down more on your side, Simon, in the sense that like, whether I like everything about this song, I have to respect him for doing it. There's no part of the song where you feel like, oh, he
7: didn't really think this through. Maybe I don't love every minute of it, but like, he certainly went there. He went there. He's grappling with these uncomfortable issues and there aren't easy answers to these questions. And I think that there are questions that not only white hip-hop musicians, but white cultural critics like myself, white hip-hop fans, should probably be reckoning with. And I'll say that Macklemore has done more to reckon with it than I have or most other people I can think of have. i Alright, thanks guys.
0: All right, we're back with our Reader Mail segment. I'm here with Associate Editor Patrick Doyle, who interviewed Five Seconds of Summer. Yes. Uh, We're an Australian (laughs) pop rock band who first got their start uh, opening for One Direction Mm -hmm. and are now playing arenas and stadiums. We actually called them on the cover the hottest band in the world. You could argue that both ways, but there's no denying the fact that they're one of the biggest young bands in the world. There are only so many bands that are playing arenas out there. This particular story probably got more reaction than almost any other cover story. I'm exaggerating a bit maybe since the Adele story but in terms of like actual vociferousness on social media this got a lot of attention let's talk a little bit about what you did with them tell me a little bit about like what kind of guys they are you you
5: actually I mean this reads like a classic rock and roll profile oh thanks well I went to LA where they all live in the same house they're 19 to 21 years old and they've just kind of moved to LA and they go out every night they're having a lot of fun so I kind of was with them for a week of that we went to a a party at the weekend's house which was fun, never felt more out of place right. in my life.
4: Right. I mean, like, in a way, like,
5: this is a pop band that got, you know, kind of pulled
0: out of obscurity in a way by One Direction mm-hmm. or a huge pop group, but they really want to be a rock band. Yeah. So in a way, like, they, they, in your story, they kind of got that. I mean, they, they, these guys behaved like rock and roll stars
5: yeah they told me that they struggled with whether they were going to tour with One Direction or not because they were worried about what that would say about the band you know going on tour with with One Direction because they they think of themselves they said we're as hardcore as any other band which might be a little bit of a stretch but they they have a side project called uh, Wormstein which is a a heavy metal you know death metal side project you know so take that yeah (laughs) (laughs) so they're smart they know if you play something on the radio for listening to classic rock radio they know every song and they sing along to the lyrics so they are real rock and roll fans well let's get to some of the tweets i mean this came out
0: over the holidays and almost immediately uh, Mm -hmm. this was was a big topic of debate Uh, just a few of them one twitter reader uh, tweeted at you why would you write such a terrible lie about five sauce i hope you get fired (laughs) which has not happened uh yet
5: Uh, i hope you don't fire me (laughs) (laughs) it's not gonna happen
0: and and stop trying to sabotage five sauce because they're famous and you're not you need to disappear poof abracadabra Bye-bye, uh, LOL, choke please. Uh, there's just, there, this kind of went on and on. I want to read like one of the actual letters we got to the magazine. Okay, this is from a reader named Eliza. This is honestly one of the worst articles I've read. The writer just seemed to be trying to portray the boys as awful people. Everything quoted could have been taken out of context and twisted. It really had nothing to do with them as a band. The article only highlighted sex, crude jokes, and cursing. What about their fans, their success, the gratitude for each other and their band, the new album? Now, before I let you respond to that, Patrick, I would say you do talk about their new album and you talk about how they play, you know, a lot, of, some of the music as well. Yes, but sure. Wh- why do you think it got this level of reaction from their fans?
5: I think it was surprising because the fans had not seen that side of the band before. Where, you know, They're talking about their past hooking up with girls and the things that they went through when they were coming up. They were very honest about it, and they were more honest than they had ever been and I think the only way a lot of the fans know them is through Twitter and the direct line that they have to them. So there wasn't really an unfiltered way of seeing them yet. So some of the fans have their own idea of of what these guys are like. Right. So this might conflict with that. Right. They have a documentary that they put out themselves and um, it's good but it's not like this story at all. They talked about they party every night. They uh, throw huge parties at their house. They uh, stay out until four in the morning a lot and they're doing everything that a 19-year-old would do if he had moved from the suburbs of Australia to L.A. I think that the fans were peeing kind of hard on them. And, I mean, the band gave me such good access that they didn't hold back anything and they didn't want to. And I think that, I mean, they they were very cool about it. They they let me stay with them in their trailer as they talked about everything. So, I I guess the point you're making is that
0: they got they gave you the access that a band that was expecting a tag along with the band profile with a rolling stone writer gave you they yeah. they looked, they were game to kind of just show the side of themselves
5: yeah they would be talking about you know a lot of things. I don't know if you can say it here or not. And then they would look at me with, like, kind of a smirk. They were having fun being a little more controversial than they've ever been before, which that's what kind of made the fans. But they were very funny, and I don't. I hope right. that came across in, in, in the piece. They were very funny guys. They weren't uh, saying this anything with malice or anything like that. I, I, mean, I certainly you know. ended up liking them by the yeah. end of
0: it. And, and there were... So- In fairness, there were, like, fans who seemed to kind of get the same point. Uh, This is from Sophie, another letter. Everyone keeps saying that this article makes Five Sauce out to be bad people or something, but I completely disagree. This is the God's honest truth, and I love it. I am a massive fan of the boys, and this is exactly the type of article I want to read about them. It's not the typical, what was your first album? it's It's just an observation and report. Massive stars drink and party and have sex with more than one person, and that doesn't make them bad people. I believe the author did a wonderful job showing this without seeming biased. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Sophie, all right. We're gonna we, I think we're gonna end this on a positive note. Uh, yeah. Patrick, thanks for coming. Thank you, Nathan. All right. yeah. and that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Rolling Stone Music Now. Uh, We're gonna be available on the iTunes store every Monday. So please subscribe on the iTunes store and keep listening.